Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. This is uh, always uh, important. We do this as a practice just to emphasize the importance of keeping regular accounts in your personal spiritual life to make sure that you are walking by the Spirit. Scripture teaches that we only have two options. We either walk by the Spirit or we walk according to our sin nature, one or the other. You can't do both. And so we it's one or the other. When we stop walking by the Spirit, then it flips over to the default position where the sin nature takes control. And the only way to recover is to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin. And that means not just saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, but identifying known sins that we remember. And God is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins as well as to cleanse us from all other sins, all other unrighteousness, the passage says. And then we recover that walk by the Spirit, that fellowship, rapport, intimacy with God as we go forward. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in fellowship in right relationship with God, ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to come together to focus upon your word, to be reminded of your grace, to be reminded of your character, your attributes, to be reminded that you control history and that even though things look chaotic and out of control from our perspective, we know that nevertheless you're working out your plan and purpose and that nothing man can do can override your plan and purpose. But on the other hand, we're not automatons. We are not robots. You do not decree and dictate every decision and every act, and you allow human beings freedom to utilize their individual responsibility and volition to make decisions, and for that we often suffer uh, many consequences. Father, as we face negative consequences, whether it's personally or nationally, we know the only way to recover is to trust in you. The only way to have peace and and stability in life is to walk consistently with you. And we pray that we might uh, always be reminded of that and that we might keep our focus upon you because you are the only soap, only source of hope and stability. Now, fathers, we study your word tonight in a very difficult doctrine. We pray you'd help us to understand as we think through these things that the Holy Spirit would make them a little bit more clear to us each time we go through this material. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Before we get, study, get started in our study of 1 Peter tonight, we're going to have a couple of areas of social commentary today. Remember on Tuesday night when we were in Samuel, I was focusing on the whole issue of, of, of hope in the midst of despair. And the focus of that particular lesson was not on, uh, on the, the fact that we despair. We all despair. We all have times when we're overwhelmed by circumstances. It's what we do with it that matters. And everyone faces that. It's part of life. It's part of being a fallen creature. But we all fall prey to that, prey to these negative uh, emotions or temptations to negative emotions because of the pressures of circumstances around us. And we live in a generation now where I think that this is going to become more and more of a challenge to every believer to keep their mental attitude focused on the rock that is our source of stability and not on the uh, ever-changing, shifting sands of political leadership. And this is a important theme I'll be hitting again and again over the next uh, 18 to 20 months as we are entering into another presidential campaign because I think it's important for us to be reminded that ultimately God's in control and the ultimate solution isn't political. But that doesn't mean that politics isn't important and crucial. We saw that in our lesson on Esther not long ago, that God was in control of the situation of the Jews in in Persia. But Esther got involved. She didn't say, well, you know, I'm just going to pray about it because uh, God's going to solve the problem. God works in and through the individual involvement of people. He worked in and through the individual involvement in the spiritual life of Hannah. We saw that on uh, Tuesday night. And so that God's working out his plan and purpose is not uh, apart from our individual responsibility. But we can't get so focused on these things that when things don't go the way we might like or the way we would hope, that we just cave into despair and anguish and frustration. Now, we've got a couple of things facing us that have been dominating the news this week. It used to be, I remember, there was one or two things like this a year, not two or three things like this every week. And I think that's an indication of the internal uh, collapse of Western civilization as a whole and the United States individually. That doesn't mean it's hopeless. I think there have been times in this country when things were certainly a lot worse in the 1850s, things got a lot worse. In the early part of the 1800s, things were certainly dicey in terms of the spiritual life. This is what led to the first, or the Second Great Awakening, is the uh, level of atheism, secularism, we might call it today, and uh, immorality that was occurring on the university campus. And that's where part of the second generation, or second great awakening began. But what's important is what I taught the other night. We have to be, we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and God uses believers. And now more than any time in history, we need to be responsible citizens. We got two situations that we need to be aware of. The primary one I just wanted to mention tonight is this situation with this uh, 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 this freedom uh, religious freedom act that has been 
so attacked in Indiana, and now when the Arkansas legislature has passed, it's been attacked, and both of these weasels who are governors have crawfished because of the pressure that's put on them. And I've read different, different analyses of the pressure, and it's coming from a very small minority, but they figured out how to, how to win the PR campaign and to put out a lot of disinformation and to twist the uh, realities of the situation. I just thought I would comment here. I've got a um, website up here on my laptop from the Alliance uh, for Defending Freedom, and according to their website, they take the position that this act, and if you've been watching this, and you should be aware of this, that this act was originally signed into national law by Bill Clinton back in, I believe it was uh, 1993. Now, there's a little verbiage that's different, but it's not verbiage that allows or promotes promotes discrimination. The uh, uh, lesbian, gay, transvestite community is all up in arms about this and trying to tell everybody that this is anti-gay legislation. Number one, it's not designed to be anti-gay legislation. It is designed to protect people from discrimination, not to authorize discrimination. And according to uh, the website of the uh, Alliance for Defending Freedom, they say that not only do they reject the notion that this act could be used to refuse LGBT from services, but they make the point that there's never been any instance where a business has refused to serve a person based on their sexual orientation. Now, immediately they say the most popular case that people think of on this, and this was all new to me. I've read two or three things about these cases, and what you read from uh, a lot of conservative and Christian websites, has just it's just like they're not even talking about the same case that you hear about uh, in the news. And they point out here, and I'm going to read what they say because uh, we need to be aware of this side of the story. They say, take the popular case involving Baronelle Stutzman, a florist. Baronelle lovingly served her friend Rob Ingersoll, who she knew identified as a gay, and his partner for nearly 10 years. She's their florist and their friend. She arranged flowers that the couple sent to one another for birthdays and other occasions. In one very specific instance, when Rob asked her to design the flowers for his same-sex wedding, Baronel gently told him that because of what her faith teaches her about marriage, she could not use her artistic talents to celebrate a same-sex wedding. And she kindly referred him to other florists who she knew would do a good job for him. Does that mean that she was turning LGBT people away at the door and not serving them? Absolutely not. That did not happen. And again, she served the same-sex couple for years, and they were counted as friends. As I was reflecting on this, there is a foundational uh, belief that undergirds the First Amendment of the United States Bill of Rights. And that is freedom of conscience. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is just free to do whatever in the world they want to do because they can claim that violates my conscience. This has been argued and it has been established as precedence in, the, in legal courtrooms for several decades. 
I'll give you two examples of this. The people who claim this is my religious belief, this is my the, my conscience according to my be- religious belief, are people who have identified and been part of a religious group or a religious denomination for it's known. It's not just something that popped up. They're not just, you know, a, a member of the What's Happening Now church. They have been a Quaker, for example, or a Mennonite for a while, maybe their whole life. They have pacifist convictions. They believe the Bible is against violence or participating in war. The United States Supreme Court has recognized that the government does not have the right to impose itself on their conscience and violate their freedom of religious expression. Another example it relates to Jehovah's Witnesses who believe it is against their religious convictions to say the Pledge of Allegiance, and that also was adjudicated and that the decision was that they could not, that asking them to violate their conscience was a violation of the First Amendment. That's really the issue, and I haven't heard anybody bring this point out, that if you have a business, a privately owned business, we're not talking about Walmart or Apple or, or some publicly owned corporation. We're talking about an individual who is selling a product. And that they have, that in the selling and the, uh, use of that product, they, they would be seen as endorsing the, the, the situation or the circumstance in which their product is being used. And that they have a right, according to their re- individual religious conviction, to say, no, that violate, you cannot force me to violate my religious belief that's a violation of my First Amendment rights. It has nothing to do with discrimination toward anybody. It has to do with protecting their right in the same way that we protect the rights of various other, uh, various beliefs and various religious organizations. But this has been eroded and attacked over the last 30 or 40 years. And from the atheist, agnostic, anti-God, secular left, Christians are becoming, Christian belief is the enemy because we're viewed as those who will stop them from doing what they want to do. And so this is an attack specifically on Christianity, but it's also an attack on Islam. How many of you all have heard anybody bring Islam into this whole equation? You know, Muslims are as more are, act, are greatly hostile to the LGBT community, much more than Christians are. Christians just say you can't... You can do what you want to do. That should be our attitude. Now, there are some Christians who are who have wrong attitudes and they're hateful and spiteful, but that's not biblical. What is biblical is that we recognize that there are a lot of different sins that people commit, homosexuality being one of them, and it has a public persona. We're being asked to approve of something that we cannot approve of. That's ultimately their agenda is that Christians need to validate what they are doing. And Christians don't need to validate what they're doing any more than they validate any number of other sins. We have to take a stand. But what happens when you get into a culture of postmodernism when there are no absolutes and nobody has a frame of reference or a foundation uh, to establish their belief system, then everybody has the right to do whatever they want to and to impose that upon everybody else. 
And I remember when I was in high school in basic basic civics that the issue of freedom is that everybody has the right to do whatever they want to, but it stops when it forces someone else to violate their personal convictions, and we can't do that. And that's foundational for the for the Bill of Rights. But once this changes, then this has a domino effect legally. The precedent that has been set legally is that freedom of conscience is foundational to the First Amendment. You may agree or disagree with that. I really don't care. That's the legal precedent. And once we start violating that, then the only alternative is for the government to step into the vacuum and be the ultimate determiner of what is morally acceptable or not and what is spiritually acceptable or not. And that's the purpose of the First Amendment, is to keep the government out of the church and keep the government out of the business of establishing morals. Now, the other thing that happened today, and this is such fresh news that that I'm not sure exactly what the situation is going to be other than it's bad, is that <clears throat> through a lot of um, uh, leisure domain, uh, the powers that be in Lausanne, Switzerland, managed to work out some sort of deal, a deal to keep the talks going between the, um, you know, Western European powers, the P5 plus one, and that's, that represents our side in talking with, with Iran. And basically what's happened in this, this little shift that took, took place today was it, validated all of the compromises the Obama administration has been making up to this point, and this now becomes the framework for working out a deal. As I understand it, the sanctions aren't going to end today or tomorrow, but if an agreement is reached, that's when the sanctions will immediately end and a number of other things will happen. But it puts a lot of pressure on uh, on the Senate right now to pass the Menendez-Corker bill. And so that entails a lot of folks. Now, folks who are here in Texas, this isn't a big deal because our uh, congressmen are all on board, but folks who live in other parts of the country where they have Democrat senators, uh, if they feel so inclined, they should pick up the phone and ask their senators to co-sign on this bill. The only thing is going to, th- this is how we stand in the gap, is that politely, under the responsibility of our citizenship is that we exercise those rights and privileges to tell our uh, representatives in Congress how they should represent us. And so these two things have to, uh, Christians need to be heard. If we're not heard, we're going to be not like Esther. We're going to be like those who just cave in and uh, keep their mouths silent and suffer uh, suffer the consequences. Okay. With that said, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 26 as we get started here. I have a couple of rules. Any of you who watch NCIS, you know that Gibbs has his list of 30 or 40 rules. Well, I've got my, a couple of my rules. I don't know if I always keep them set, but rule number one is the degree to which somebody is excited that first time they visit the church is directly proportional to the shortness of the time they will be there. And that's been confirmed by a lot of people. A lot of people come in here and they just just effervesce when class is over and come up and say, this is the best thing. I've been looking for a church like this all my life. And I'll look at my watch and say, 
they'll be through the door in 30 seconds and we'll never see them again. That's what happens. The people who just sit in the back and they're happy and they don't say anything and they quietly go home that first Sunday after two or three weeks, you keep seeing them, they're probably going to stick around a while. But the ones that come up and say something about how great it is, they're out of here. The other rule, rule number two, is that whenever anybody asks me to review something and go over it again because they just need to hear it one more time, that when I review it and go over it again, they will not be here. (laughs) Always happens. Okay, so we're back to some review on election and foreknowledge because I'm sure that if one person had their head swimming in a fog last week, there was probably uh, quite a few others. So we're in First Peter chapter 1. We've gone through the initial salutation where Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then in the Greek, the word elect, eklektoi, comes prior to the... Uh, identification of the recipient. So it's elect uh, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according, or the elect comes at the beginning, that says according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for the uh, obedience and cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now that's broken down into three prepositional phrases here, each of which uh, modifies the uh, adjective elect. So it's not just elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but in the same way, in the same level syntactically, it's elect by sanctification. Now we've looked at this word elect quite a bit, and I want to remind you that it's not just the idea of selection or making a choice like going down to the polls uh, in November or in March or whenever we have an election and selecting one from many, that one of the major meanings, nuances of the word is the idea of choice. It's qualitative. That someone is elect, that, that means their choice. They are, they have a degree of excellence or quality about them. And this is also reflected, we saw, in the Old Testament word, bachar, meaning uh, chosen or choice or select or the most excellent one. It's talking not so much about choosing one or being having been chosen, but something that is has a very high quality. And, of course, by now we all know the doctrine of the magnum bar and understanding how I uh, saw this in modern Hebrew, that choice almonds me- meaning... Uh, select or excellent almonds, the, the highest quality, are what's used in making the uh, magnum bar. Also emphasize the, that in studying this, we have to understand the importance of corporate identity in relation to both Israel and the church. They are choice. Israel is choice because God selected them for a high purpose. Um, and it is not individual election or choosing to salvation. And then the church is uh, select and is excellent because of its relationship to Christ. We work this out through looking specifically at the parable of the of the banquet, wedding banquet in Matthew uh, twenty two fourteen, which concludes, "Many are called, few are chosen." Chosen, as I pointed out, introduces the idea that the host of the banquet 
made a selection of who would be there. But when you read the story, the only people who are making a choice are the ones who are unwilling to respond positively to the invitation and go to the banquet. So as I put up on the on the screen, uh, in the parable, the choice ones are choice because of the quality of their robes. They're dressed correctly. <clears throat> and those robes represent imputed righteousness, not their works. And that the only mention of anyone making a volitional decision in the parable are those who are unwilling to respond to the invitation and attend the banquet. Thus, the issue in the conclusion that many are called, few are chosen. Many are invited, but fewer choice, emphasizing that those who are there have a higher quality because they're wearing the right dress, the robes of righteousness, the imputed righteousness. This is seen in a Old Testament passage talking about God has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So all of this has just a way of introducing us and reminding us to this um, to this particular concept. So we go back to our slide that we're elect according to a standard, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we have to understand this word foreknowledge. And I pointed out last time, looking at a number of different definitions, I'm just going to look at the last one, in a work called The Five Points of Calvinism that states when the Bible speaks of God knowing particular individuals, it often means that he has special regard for them, that they are the objects of his affection and concern. Now the question we need to ask, what's the basis for that special regard? Why does he regard them that way? Based on the parable that we looked at in Matthew 22, it regards them that way because they possess righteousness not because he's going to he has chosen them ahead of time to give them righteousness now when we look at here's a contrast when we look at calvinist theologians they will say that the word group foreknowledge means to choose to determine to enter into a relationship beforehand or to elect prognosco means to choose where the root word there is gnosko, and it has a prefix pra, which means before. One principle we ought to understand from, probably applies to most languages, but it does to Greek, that the core word, the root word there is knowledge. Whatever else we say about the meaning of prognosko, guess what has to be part of the meaning? Knowledge. Choose, as it's translated somewhere. It has nothing to do with knowledge. Uh, to determine ahead of time has nothing to do with knowledge. Just because you, 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 let me restate this. When you add any, for every letter you add to the root word in Greek, to some degree, small or large, it changes the meaning of the word. So you add a prefix, pra, it changes to some degree the meaning of the word, but the root meaning still has to include the idea of knowledge. So just by changing uh, the prefix or adding the prefix of uh, P-R-O, which means beforehand, doesn't change the core meaning of gnosko, which is the verb for knowledge. It means to know beforehand. All of the lexicons emphasize this idea 
that it means to know beforehand. Now, in their discussions later on of these words, sometimes they bring in their own theological ideas and try to read that into the meaning of the word, but they run into various uh, various problems. Now, another thing I pointed out last time is that one major problem in determining the meaning of, uh, of, of any word is the assumption on the part of many Calvinist theologians that when you take this word, this verb, and you change the, the subject, the one who performs the action of foreknowing from man to God, it changes the meaning of the verb. Now, that's just a logical fallacy. That, that a word means the same thing whether, whether man is doing it or God is doing it. The idea that the change from man to God changes the whole meaning of the word doesn't even make sense. That's just, that's just poor linguistics. So we look at the fact that the main idea has to do with knowledge. And I pointed this out in looking at a couple of the lexicons the last time, that in the Liddell Scott Jones lexicon, which is, covers classical as well as Koine Greek, they emphasize the primary meaning is to know or to perceive or to learn or to understand something beforehand. They give a second definition, which means to judge beforehand, which basically means to evaluate something ahead of time. Now, neither of these definitions have the idea of having a relationship with someone ahead of time. It doesn't have the idea of loving someone uh, ahead of time. It doesn't have the idea of choosing them or electing them or predetermining anything about them. It just isn't there. And the conclusion that we reach from that is that uh, that nowhere looking at the Liddell Scott Jones lexicon is there a meaning for prognosco that implies choice, election, a loving relationship, or predestination? It's not listed there at all. I went back and looked at uh, some other lexicons this last week because I had a little more time, and I picked up a new one uh, via Lagos. It's an older lexicon from uh, either, I think it's late 19th century, early 20th century by Kramer. And Kramer lists the primary meaning of prognosco is to perceive or recognize beforehand, to know previously, or to foreknow. That's that's at the very beginning of, of his three or four paragraphs of analysis of the word. What's interesting is that he then changes the meaning of the word as he deals with different passages based on theological presuppositions. He says uh, about Acts 2.23 uh, that in its simplest form, doesn't matter what 2.23 says right now in terms of his statement, he says, in its simplest form, it is simplest to take prognosis, or, yeah, prognosis as a resolution formed beforehand. See, he wants to ha- have introduced determination to that. He says it's simplest to take it that way, though this meaning is foreign to classical Greek. Hello? How can you just arbitrarily assign a meaning to the word because of your theology? He says that kind of a deterministic meaning is completely foreign to classical Greek. So this is typically what what happens in these kinds of, uh, of things. So let's look at... 
I'm going to skip, I'm going to skip through these slides. Let's look at Acts 26.5. Acts 26.5. Turn your Bibles to Acts 26.5, and let's just sort of think our way through the context a little bit. This is one of two passages where everybody agrees what the meaning is. And so it's very nice to start here because basic rule of word study and basic rule of even exegesis of passages is that when you are in areas where the meaning is ambiguous, you always go with meanings that are clear to define meanings that are ambiguous. In other words, if a word predominantly means one thing in 95% of its uses. And in 5% of its uses, it conceivably could mean that or something else. Then the way you determine its meaning is by usage that it probably means in those five uses that could be something else, the same thing that it means in the other 95% of its uses. You have to have extremely good contextual uh, contextual evidence to say that it means uh, Y when it means X 95% of the time. So these two passages we're going to look at, a couple of passages we're going to look at, indicate the very clear statement. So in Acts 26.5, Paul says, as he's addressing Herod Agrippa, they knew me, prognosco, they knew ahead of time, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now let's look at this context. In verse 1 we read, Then Agrippa said to Paul, so this is at the time when he is in Caesarea Maritima, and he is uh, un- under arrest there and being held, uh, waiting his uh, being taken to Rome. And Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, is the king, and says to Paul, well, I want to talk to Paul, and, and he says, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, and he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things which I am accused of by the Jews. So he starts off thanking him for the opportunity to speak, and in these couple of verses he addresses Agrippa as and reminds him that Agrippa is knowledgeable about the Jews and the issues that are facing uh, face, facing the Jews. That's in verse 3. You're an expert in all the customs and questions that have to do with the Jews. So he butters him up a little bit and tells him he knows all that's going on, and Herod Agrippa was knowledgeable about all the issues and challenges and conflicts in, in, uh, between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and all the other groups. And then in verse 4, Paul goes on to inform Agrippa that he had been living in Jerusalem from the time he was a young man, probably not long after he was bar mitzvahed when he was about 13 or 14. And so all the Jews knew this, he says. This would be a reference to the Jewish leadership. And in verse 5 he says, this is the passage, he says, they knew me, it's translated in the New King James Version, they knew me from the first. And that's our word, prognosco. They knew me ahead of time. So here we see that prognosco, now think about this. This is what words are so important. Prognosco only refers to knowledge. It doesn't refer to having a relationship. 
It doesn't refer to having an intimate relationship or a loving relationship. It doesn't refer to the Jews making a choice about Paul. It doesn't refer to the Jews having a predetermined plan or anything other than they are cognizant of certain facts about Paul. Okay? It's knowledge about Paul. It's not personal relationship. They knew certain things about him, just as I know certain things about some of you, but I don't necessarily know you very well, but I know certain things about you. doesn't mean that there is an intimate relationship involved. So Paul says, they knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So what did the Jews know about him? They knew he had been a Pharisee. They didn't have to know where he was from, that he was from Tarsus. They didn't have to know a lot of other stuff. Paul just saying they, they knew that Saul of Tarsus, later Paul the Apostle, was a Pharisee. Now, the grammar here is also important. The grammar says they knew... Me. Me is in the accusative case. That means it's the object of the verb. It's the object of the knowing. And in this verse, it introduces the content for, for knowing me. They knew me ahead of time. And so the object there makes it clear that by knowing me, what we could supply to make it more intelligible in English is they knew about me. It doesn't have that word about in the text, but that's what it means. And this is something that is common in the in, in, in Greek as we translate from one verse to another. Now, I went over this last time, and that might have just kind of blown right by some people, because again, this gets a little technical, and I know that when I start talking about grammar, I can see eyes glaze over... People start thinking about what they're going to eat for breakfast in the morning or how late they're going to sleep or whatever it is. Okay, but this is, this is important. In this verse, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews says, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Confident of better things. We're not concerned about exegeting the passage, just understanding the phrase. In the Greek, that word of that I have in italics up here, that word of, between confident and better confident of, isn't, isn't really in the text itself. The text basically has a verb that means we are confident. And the object, the accusative case, is better things. We are confident better things. Does that make sense to people? We're confident better things. So the verb really means we are confident of better things. Now, usually we associate that English preposition of, uh, like the love of God, we associate that with a genitive case. But this is just supplied in order to communicate the relationship between the verb and the object of the verb, just as in Acts uh, 26.5 we read, they knew about me. From the start. So we supply this kind of verbiage in order to um, clarify the verb. Another verse, 
that we could go to is Matthew 12:33, which we'll be getting to sometime in the next few weeks in our study in Matthew on Sunday morning. Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Now here we don't have the word prognosco, we have just the root verb gnosko. A verb is known by, by a tree. Now the point I'm making here is that whenever you read or you hear somebody teach that's a Calvinist, that's teaching about foreknowledge, they make the point that, and this is an exegetical fallacy as well, they make the point that to understand the meaning of Gnosko, we have to go back to the Hebrew. Now, oftentimes, Hebrew shapes the nuance of Greek words that are used in the New Testament. But that, that it's not always a one-to-one correspondence, and the Old Testament word doesn't equal the New Testament word. You have to demonstrate. You can't just assume that. You have to demonstrate it exegetically by looking at the, That's what pastors do if they know the original languages. You spend all day reading hundreds of examples of the use of the word Knowledge in the Old Testament. Guess how many times the word no is used in the Old Testament? A lot. And you sit down and you classify all of them. And there's only about 90 of the, it's 450 something. There's only about 90 of them that indicate some kind of relationship. But that's all it is. It's not a loving relationship. It's not a predetermined relationship. It's not a, just talking about a situation where there's an election. Uh, a relationship like like God says to, of Israel that I knew you, uh, talking about God's previous relationship to to Israel. So that's there in some context. But what you'll hear Calvinists say is that it, this is always a, a a a primary nuance within the word. Adam knew Eve. See, that's not just academic knowledge. He just didn't know about Eve. She, it's an intimate knowledge. And so, and there's only about five or six cases in the Old Testament where you could indicate intimate knowledge as being possibly part of the nuance of the word. But it's a secondary tertiary idea. So you get to Matthew 12:33. We see here, tree is known uh, intimately by its fruit. Is that what it saying? The... The tree is, you know the tree by having a relationship with the tree. Well, maybe if you're a member of Greenpeace and you're a tree hugger, but uh, no, a, a tree is known by its fruit. You know about the tree from looking at the fruit. Okay, my whole point in going through all of this is simply to make the point that knowledge is often about something. It is not knowledge that necessarily entails relationship or choice or or intimacy so there's no sort of electing love a tree is is chosen by its fruit this doesn't even make sense so this is part part of the problem so what we see in the context of acts 26:5 is that that there's no indication of relationship, a deterministic plan, electing love, or any of these things implied. It is simply being uh, having cognition of certain facts about Paul. Okay, then we go to a passage in First Peter. First Peter one twenty states, "He speaking of Jesus Christ, he indeed was foreknown, which prognosco." 
Notice in the King James up here, or or foreordained, I I think I said foreknown. He indeed was foreordained. This is the New King James. The NASB translates it foreknown. And the word is prognosco, to know something ahead of time, prescience, prior knowledge. He indeed was, he meaning Jesus Christ, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now notice the object of foreknowledge here is an eternal person, Jesus Christ. So the person who does the foreknowing is God the Father, who is also eternal. So there are certain aspects of this particular illustration that are a little different, but nevertheless, uh, it serves for an illustration. One Calvinist commentator says that this word should be should be understood to refer to a loving, committed relationship. Jesus Christ was indeed known in a loving, committed relationship before the foundation of the world. That has nothing to do with the context. It is talking about it is, and, and this writer goes on to say it can't possibly mean prescience. It is talking about God the Father's plan and purpose for the second person of the Trinity when he entered into human history. But too often what we see is this idea of introducing electing love into the meaning of the word when basically what it's saying is God knew ahead of time. He knew about what would take place when Christ came. So, Another thing we see here is that when we just look at the structure of this verse, we see that there's a contrast between something that happened and completed action in the past, and that's the line I put underneath, was before the foundation of the world. He was before the foundation of the world. The word was, there's a perfect tense participle indicating completed action, which is contrasted to the next phrase, which is was manifest, in these last times. So what we see here is a contrast between something in the far past and something in the recent past that's in the in the present, in these last times, in the present of the recent time. So a conclusion here is that this is not talking about election, but that, that God knew something ahead of time about what would happen now. That's what fits the context. Next verse, which is the second verse, it's really obvious, and nobody argues over the meaning over the meaning here, Second Peter three seventeen. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, clearly this is just talking about knowing something ahead of time. Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. This is clearly not talking about having a relationship beforehand, being determined beforehand, electing beforehand. It is talking about simply knowing something ahead of time. Now, I think everybody's probably figured, riding along with me pretty easily right now. We haven't hit any any little speed bumps along the way for our thinking, and everything's pretty smooth. So fasten your seatbelt. Now we get to one that's a little more complicated and a little more fun. This is in Acts 2.23. Again, this is Peter speaking, so this is important because the two of the previous, uh, or one of the previous examples we've used, and another, the other one, of course, is the one in our passage, 1 Peter 1.2. These are all 1 Peter 1.2, 1, um, uh, 1 Peter 1.20, 1 
and Acts 2.23 all come from the mouth or the pen of the Apostle Peter. And so again, talking about Jesus Christ, he says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, in this verse, what we have is a statement related to two actions, one by God, related to God, and one related to the Jewish leadership in their complicity along with the Romans. This isn't an attack on Jews. This isn't saying Jews killed Jesus because it was the Romans. The, the Jews could have wanted to kill Jesus all day long for three years, but they had to have permission from the Roman authorities. And it wasn't, it was when the Roman authorities gave, gave permission that Jesus was crucified. So the Romans, if you're going to sign blame, the Romans had the lion's share of the blame. There's no basis in the scripture for going around and punishing Jews for being Christ killers. That was a horrible uh, lie that developed in the early, uh, early Middle Ages that is to be rejected by every Christian. So what we have here in Acts 2.23 is that Peter is telling the Jewish leaders that the killing of Jesus on the God side was by the determined plan and foreknowledge of God. We have two words here. The word translated determined is the word haridzo in a perfect tense indicating completed action and past time. And the word uh, purpose, which is the word boule, meaning will or purpose. That's where we get that first compound phrase, determined purpose, the determined uh, will of God. And then we have a conjunction. Remember conjunction, junction on Sesame Street. Okay, that joins two things of equal weight. Okay, this is important for understanding the grammar here. You have a, a couple of nouns, and then you have a conjunction, and then you have another noun. And that second noun I didn't even put up here because that's the one we're looking at, which is prognosco, foreknowledge. So Horizon and Boule are on one side, then you have this conjunction, and then you have Prognosco on the other side. Now the issue then becomes how does how do we understand determined purpose, first of all? Well, if you follow if you follow the Calvinist argument that the meaning has to uh, of determined purpose has to relate also to foreknowledge then you would take foreknowledge to mean having an intimate loving relationship so let's see how that works him being delivered by the determined purpose and intimate loving relationship of god does that work that doesn't even make sense Okay, let's do another word substitution. Delivered by the determined purpose. We don't have a, uh, we don't have any problem with the concept that God had a determined plan for the Lord Jesus Christ to be crucified from eternity past. Not a problem. By the determined purpose and election of God. Does that fit the context? Not at all. This is what happens when you come along, you reach theological deductions, and then you go back and you read those theological deductions into the text rather than exegeting, which means to draw the meaning out of the text. You're eisegeting and you're reading your theology into the text. So here we have this, this phrase. Now, how do we understand this? How do we understand this? Well, let's point out another problem. A pro another problem that they have is that Often Calvinists want foreknowledge to mean uh, 
a determined plan. Then the passage would read, being delivered by the determined purpose and determined plan of God. See a problem with that? That's what they call a tautology. That's, you're just repeating yourself. So their, their ideas for how foreknowledge should be translated when God's involved just don't make sense. It doesn't fit the meaning of the text. It doesn't follow lexical data. It doesn't follow usage, and it doesn't fit the real-time meaning of the text. So how do we handle this? One way to handle this that I pointed out in Acts Lesson 23 when we went through this in our study of Acts, I made the point that one way that could solve this that, that has some, uh, some value is to understand this as what's called a hendiadeth. You've probably heard me use that once, once or twice and you had no idea what it meant. You just moved right on down the road and figured I knew, knew what I was talking about. Hendiadeth refers to a construction similar, Tom, to a Granville-Sharp rule. Tom loves a Granville-Sharp rule. Uh, it's very similar. You have an article, definite article, and a noun, and then a conjunction-junction with chi, and then another noun. And the Granville-Sharp rule really applies only to proper, proper nouns, and in those cases, under certain rules and context, the two nouns are equated as being synonymous. But in common nouns, they're not synonymous, and in other circumstances, they're not synonymous. So some people come up, well, this is a hendiadis. But in a hendiadis, the article really is uh, irrelevant to the idea of a rhetorical device. And if you go through a lot of grammars, they don't even touch hendiadis because there are so many different uh, definitions of what a hendiadis is that it's not that always that uh, that useful, but we'll talk about it anyway. So in a hendiadis, it would make these two nouns related to each other. Let's make a couple of ob- observations. First of all, when you ha- if you had an hendiadis here, one of these would function adjectivally to modify the other. They're not of equal weight. Now, I pointed out in Acts Lesson 23 that uh, when it does this, one noun expresses a dependence on the other noun, but 75% of the time, the first noun is dependent on the second noun. That would mean that determined purpose would be dependent upon foreknowledge. But you'll often find Calvinists trying to use this in diadis argument, but it kind of falls apart in terms of how the majority use, although it's kind of weak to try to make a hendiadis uh, argument. So the bottom line on this is that in Acts 2.23 here, it mentions two things. It mentions that God has a determined plan, but it also mentions that that plan is based on and related to his knowledge of future events. See, what you typically have in Calvinism is God doesn't know all the knowable. You've heard me say that many times. God knows all the knowable, the things that actually will happen and things that could possibly happen. In Calvinism, God... I mean, God only knows what will actually happen, and his knowledge determines what will actually happen. So Calvinism rejects the whole notion that God knows 
an infinite amount of possibilities. Now, I have a little problem with that because I think, despite the claims of Calvinism, that really expresses a lower view of God's omniscience than my view. Let's put it this way. Ask you a question. Think about this. In the last couple of minutes, put your thinking cap on and don't get scrambled brains. Is it a higher view of God to claim that God knows all things, but the all things are what he has determined? And that God in eternity to past determined on some unrevealed basis that some would be saved and he would save them by sending his son to die only for them. I mean, that's their view. This is a high view of God in Calvinism. That God knows everything, but the only thing he really knows is what he's determined because that's all, all that's ever actually going to happen is what he determines. And that he, he's going to save only a set number of people and he's going to save them by sending his son to die only for them. Or is it actually a higher view of God to claim that God knows all the knowable, all of the potential and possible, as well as all of the actual, but that his sovereignty is so extensive that in spite of the chaotic decisions of, enacted by his creatures, that God can still, without overpowering or violating individual responsibility, bring order out of chaos and accomplish his plan. Isn't it a higher view of God to argue that God allows his creatures a degree of freedom which enables them to freely respond to general and special revelation and on that basis either deliver or condemn them? Isn't that a higher view of God? I think it is. I think that this view that God controls everything is a much lower view of God and smacks of, of determinism. Okay. So what we see here is that in a lot of contentions from Calvinists, you say, well, God makes these choices, but we don't know the basis. That's why it's called unconditional election. There's no stated conditions. And his, and they completely exclude the fact that God would take into account foreseen decisions of, of, his, of the free agents of human beings in making those decisions. If he takes into account what he knows they will do, then that becomes in their mind the effectual cause of their salvation. So you'll often hear Calvinists say, well, if you believe that if God looks down the corridor of time and chooses you, then he chooses you because you believe. But as I've pointed out many times, no self-respecting theologian would say agree to that because the Bible never says we're, we're saved because of our faith. We're saved through faith. But to say that God excludes his omniscience from his choosing and determination of his plan is to make God arbitrary. Now, 1 Peter 1, 2, what we have in our passage is that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And the Greek preposition that's used here that's translated according is the Greek preposition kata, which normally indicates according to a norm or a standard. Now, this same word, similar phrase, is used in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Talking about the Antichrist, who said is his coming is kata. It is according to the working of Satan. Now, this preposition is important. Prepositions are always important. 
The preposition commonly qualifies the action when used as a verb, such a verbal idea such as the noun elect. It has a verbal idea. So when it says that the Antichrist coming is according to the working of Satan, it means that his, he comes into his position due to or because of Satan's working. It's his, his coming into his position as leader of the world is either due to or because of Satan's working. In 1 Peter 1, 2, this has the same idea. Elect has a verbal idea, and it demonstrates that this has the idea that God's act of, cho- of making a choice here of, uh, related to these, uh, that this is talking about choice, that it's according to or due to or because of the action of foreknowledge. Now, I'm going to point out that it really doesn't have that much of a verbal idea. It's more the noun idea of choice. But if you're going, but what I'm saying here is if you want to argue that it's a verbal idea that God is choosing here, then you've got to go with the idea that it's choosing due to or because of God's foreknowledge. Now, I think the better solution is to look at elect as choice. We're choice according to certain things, according to the foreknowledge of God, his plan. And that plan focuses on imputed righteousness. And that being choice is also by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. That's positional truth. That because we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that's the means by which that choiceness, that, that imputed righteousness is realized in our salvation. And because we're choice, because we have imputed righteousness, we are to do something. There is a purpose statement there at the end of the verse. We are, we are made choice, positionally righteous, for the purpose of experiential righteousness, obedience, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, which is a reference to ongoing uh, cleansing. So with that... I'm going to conclude what we're talking about tonight. Hopefully that helps you understand foreknowledge a little bit. And we'll wrap it up a little bit more next time, and then we will uh, move forward. But this is always an important verse. It's one of two verses. The other, we'll look at it briefly again next time. In Romans 8.29, whom God foreknew or knew ahead of time, he also predestined. Predestination in Romans 8.29 comes after foreknowledge. As I've pointed out many times, I want to say this now, I'll say it again next week, is predestination is to determine someone's destiny ahead of time. But the destiny here isn't destiny in the lake of fire or even heaven. What are you predestined to? What is the destiny God sets for every believer? That you are to be conformed to the image of his son. That's character. God says, I've got a plan for every one of you, and that plan is to make you like Christ so that your character reflects it. It's also called the fruit of the Spirit. So that your character reflects the virtue of Christ in your life. So it's based on his omniscience of what will happen ahead of time. And on that, he chooses this destiny, not to heaven or hell, but to be like Christ. And we'll start there next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, be reminded of your grace. We pray for our country. We pray for our nation. We pray for those in the Senate that they would have the courage to stand up for for, uh, what will provide uh, real security. 
uh, at least temporarily in terms of a treaty, that they will take a stand for the security of this country and be wise in analyzing uh, the details of whatever comes out of this conference. We pray that you would give wisdom, that you would change the mind of the president and of his advisors if possible, and we pray that you would uh, give us the strength and courage and calm and peace to live out our lives in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation that will uh, increasingly, it seems, be hostile to biblical truth and biblical Christianity. And we can have hope and confidence, and we can be happy even in the midst of these negative circumstances because they're not the source of our happiness, you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.